0: welcome to just go grind a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship i'm your host justin gordon and in this episode we have tara viswanathan the co-founder and ceo of rupa health a functional medicine platform streamlining the process of specialty labs for practitioners. In this episode, we go through a wide variety of topics from how Tara actually started Rupa Health and got it built for only $800, her experience fundraising when she was trying to raise a seed round initially, ended up raising a pre-seed. She goes through that, her talk of equity split and how she looked at that with her co-founder who she brought on board, conversations around relative equity in that versus absolute percentages, something we haven't talked a lot about on the show, but I think it's really important that she brought up her approach to growing the team and how she's built the team for Rupa Health so far today her own mental health practice and what kind of keeps her functioning at a high level each day, and even her experience with Wim Hof and the Wim Hof Method, which she talks about her experience with that as well. Lots of topics discussed in this episode. As always, the show notes are at jiscogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show. Leave a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure gave clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23 if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado, here is Tara Viswanathan, the co-founder and CEO of Rupa Health. Tara, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, so good to be here.
0: Yeah, and with Rupa Health, theres uh, I know that you've gone through a pivot before, uh, just from my research I've done beforehand. Uh, what's the current iteration of, of Rupa Health, if you give people some context?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, we've been through a couple pivots. We've stayed in the same space, though. The current iteration... Um, Funny you ask. We are currently working on our positioning statement with with, with marketing experts. So let me try this one on. Uh, (laughs) But we're we're a functional medicine platform, and we help streamline the process of specialty labs for all of our practitioners on board. So practitioners can be anyone from a doctor all the way to an acupuncturist or a nutritionist and kind of everything in between.
0: Amazing. And this is for context for people. Recorded on September 22nd, 2020. So as this evolves and people listen to us later on, like, oh, that's where they were then. Just love to have that context. And then how did this all get started, though, Tara?
1: Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, 40
0: minutes. <laughs> the beginning, the like, very beginning.
1: Yeah. It, honestly, it's like probably my life story, which is, um, which is not helpful at all to say. So <laughs> let me let me try to pick out a couple pieces that might be relevant honestly this absolutely started even even as I was a kid, I've always been interested in what you know what it means to be healthy and happy and how our quality of life changes when we're that way. and as a kid, I was fascinated by biology and genetics and all these things that honestly just made me understand my friends better. <laughs> and I grew up with a dad who ran the pediatric ICU in our small hometown in Texas, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And where there, the reason why we ended up in Texas was because he was a doctor, and that's where they were gonna, you know, give him the best job and quality of life. And um, a grandfather who thought coconut oil was the solution to everything. So on one my <laughs> like a very wet western medicine father and on the other hand i have like a grandfather who believed in coconut oil and ayurveda and i always just thought those two worlds were really interesting um and i i i got to see both of them growing up but back to the genetics and science and the things that i liked doing i thought that studying those things meant i had to be a doctor and so i actually veered away from that in college ended up going to business school, um, because that's where I thought you learned how to start a business. Nobody <laughs> told me that it wasn't. <laughs> I showed up to <clears throat> to Warden and it was like, who are these people? What <laughs> like, what is investment banking? Incredibly long story short, I I basically I studied finance in undergrad, but what I really learned was burnout. And that kind of brought me back full circle to this idea of, you know, how do we how do we Get ourselves to feel alive every single day, um, and, and then there's more to the story. I came out to California to to study how do we build products that help people have better health, um, and that was really the start of it. It was just a, that question, but we we can dive into all of those things. But really, started <laughs> out as a when I was a kid, and just kind of continued that that throughout.
0: Yeah, I love it. And it's a matter of uh, when people bring up the whole like founder product or <laughs> founder market fit, uh, this is very relevant <laughs> in this, in this case. It's something you've kind of thought about for so long and and to that point that understanding you have, you had this background where you thought about these different things and, and been into like the just researching the space kind of through your interest, then when you when you think of Rupa and starting this company, mm-hmm. what was the I guess initial iteration of what you thought this was going to be, a problem you were solving at the time?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um i I started Rupa for a couple reasons. I think one is I was exposed to a company called Parsley Health, where I was there pretty early on, and there were just a few of us at at h q and that's where I really learned what functional medicine was and I learned that this thing that I was super passionate about, which was all of these different modalities of health, not just going to see the doctor but also your nutrition and 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 even, um, even your social life and things like that, how they impact your health. I was seeing for the first time through Parsley that they could actually create better clinical outcomes. And that to me was really fascinating. And so maybe like defining functional medicine or integrative medicine or whatever you want to call it, it's almost as if wellness and conventional Western medicine collided and had a baby. So that's kind of, <laughs> of, that's kind of what we're thinking about. And so Parsley was the first company that helped me see that this could be a business. And I think that was really exciting to me. From, while I was at Parsley, my mom got sick. And essentially, my dad, who was a doctor in our family, couldn't help her. And no doctor in our hometown could help her. And I flew back to Texas and was able to help her get better with just the knowledge that I'd gained from reading hundreds of patient charts at Parsley. And that made me realize that this type of medicine needs to needs to be accessed by so many more people. And we almost have a duty to do that to bring it to every person on this planet and that's how rupa started it was it was basically hey we need to bring this to more people my background's always been in technology i live in san francisco it's hard to it's hard to <laughs> not be around it and so it's right basically, how do we merge these two worlds so that's all i walked into rupa with was this idea of we need to build infrastructure for integrative and functional medicine um and I have no idea how we're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and the, and the reason we started where we didn't in what we started on was a marketplace. It was a ZocDoc for alternative medicine providers um, is because I gave myself a deadline. And I told myself, Ooh. I I quit my job on Halloween of 2017. And I gave myself a couple months to just travel and go home and see my family and things like that and get some space. And I told myself by Jan 1, I was going to decide what that initial product was. Oh, wow. And (laughs) I was actually on a plane home from South Africa with my family because we like that's the one thing we do every year is like a New Year's trip together. I love it. And I said by the time the plane lands, I'm gonna have like UX mocks for what I'm gonna build. <laughs> and that was literally it.
0: That's how I That's awesome. And with I mean with that then, what was what was the mock up? I'm sure just in terms of like what you thought was kind of the critical components you needed to really have this be a functional MVP of sorts.
1: I thought it was just access. So it was how do we help patients even find physicians who are who will help them in this way, who will look at more than just their symptoms and give them a pill who will understand, who will strive to understand the root cause of what's going on with them and take all of their lifestyle components into consideration too. And so I thought, how do we just build that? And so the very first version was essentially like a marketplace for acupuncturists, functional medicine doctors, and nutritionists.
0: With that initial version, a couple of questions around that. One, one being, who was the team with you? Was it just you at the time?
1: Yeah, it was just me. Okay, that's um, perfect. Yeah, was, there, there, was, there was no we, although in every like, communication, I would put we.
0: Yeah, you have that's to do that, right? <laughs> it sound bigger? Well, our team is building.
1: <laughs> We're doing yeah, exactly. The, the
0: team is me, though. Uh, and with that, too, then, so how are you getting people uh, on the platform then, initially?
1: Oh, my gosh. Okay, the first thing I did when I landed was, uh, because of the time change, it was daytime, and, like on the 2nd, January 2nd. Um, and I called my acupuncturist and I said, Hey, I have something to run by you. Do you want to come over? And so she just came over and I was telling her what I was thinking and showing, I physically showed her the mocks and she immediately introduced me to, you know, maybe four or five of her friends. And then I told, I, I would just get on the phone with them and explain what I was doing. Or actually I'd try, I'd meet everybody in person at that point. It was just the Bay area. And that's how it grew
0: how i mean how many people did you end up getting i mean in the in the first few months the first few weeks like how, how did yeah. this growth go initially
1: so i think that there was that was that was the very you know first two months and then i needed i'm not an engineer so i needed someone to build this thing right and so i had to find something to make it more than just pen and paper um so there was a couple things i think it was super bowl uh Oh, and then my launch, by the way, you know, I I said I was going to start on January 1. I actually got delayed by a month because I got into the the Vipassana 10-day silent meditation retreat that I wanted to go (laughs) to. You know, just never, that's actually where I came up with the name Rupa. Longer story. And it was also over my birthday. So, and I still consider it to be my best birthday I've ever had when I was silent for 10 days. Um, But (laughs) it ended up, you know, I really started probably... February of that year. And so I remember it was a Super Bowl and it happened to be a really nice day in San Francisco. And I was catching up with a couple friends at the beach and it was my friend and her, uh, and her boyfriend and they, I was basically third wheeling. And at this point I was just asking everybody I knew if they knew any engineers who would be able to help me build this for cheap because I was bootstrapping it and it was just my savings. Um, and her boyfriend said that his friend from high school went back to Paraguay and was starting a dev shop. (laughs) (laughs) We got on the phone with that guy and he ended up building our first prototype for $800.
0: Wow. Yeah. That is very fortunate. (laughs)
1: Totally. Totally. And so you asked about users. Um, the first way we got users was just that kind of one-on-one. And then what happened was um, I I started emailing people about what I was doing. And one of the people I started emailing was my old professor at Stanford where I ended up doing grad school and basically telling him that I was working on this project. And he taught the class that really convinced me that this was my life's work. Um, it, at Stanford, it was on lifestyle medicine, uh, but he just said, Oh, why don't you come talk to the class this year? We're having, we're having an alumni day. So I ended up going to Stanford and giving a talk. And again, it was just me. Um, and I was, I was totally joking. Cause it was me and it was a girl from Omada and it was a girl from, uh, Oh my gosh, Livongo, which are like two massive healthcare companies. <laughs> and so I was totally joking. I went last and, you know, at the end of my talk I was like oh you know by the way we're hiring if anybody wants to join me and I was totally kidding and was super shocked when basically like the entire class swarmed me afterwards and I ended up hiring my first employee from that class who is now my co-founder um but back to your question of like how do we get the users so the real way we got our users and we probably had maybe like 500 practitioners on the platform um that summer was literally like my first employee rosa now turned co-founder would cold email hundreds of practitioners and that was it
0: that's what that means many times is what you have to do just to, to get started and that's uh there's a there's an art to that i've actually when i had a different company called pod puppy we we're doing podcast production uh that's what we did we had a virtual assistant doing cold email and we've probably sent we probably sent a couple thousand, uh, at least cold emails and totally. like, you know, yeah. And that's how you, you know, you, you get people from that. It definitely takes a lot of work, but from that, the time though, when you're doing that to acquire, acquire customers, then what is the business model behind it? When you, when you start with Rupa health?
1: Oh my gosh. I think that was one of my biggest, not biggest mistakes. Cause I don't really think that there's any mistakes in this other than the only mistake is not doing something is inaction. Um, But that was definitely one of my, one of the things that I think I could have listened to my gut on, Um, you know, again, I'm in Silicon Valley. The advice I was hearing was don't worry about business model, just get users. (laughs) And so in my gut, I was like, this doesn't seem like a smart idea, but, um, but yeah, that's what I did. I, uh, I didn't think about the business model. It was, oh yeah, marketplace, we'll do some kind of advertising. You know, I couldn't even convince myself on that.
0: (laughs) At that point, then no understanding you. Okay, you know you wanted to grow. You want you know you wanted to have more users because that you can figure out the back end of it. Then how did this progress? Because I, I'm curious as to how it. Obviously, now you have you know co-founders. Now you have employees. Now it's it's changed to today in 2020. But at what point did it get to? Okay, either you had to get a, a, a revenue model, or uh you, you you. I know you mentioned pivoting a couple of times. Like how did it get yeah. to that that first pivot? Maybe.
1: Yeah. It was really out of necessity. Um, so Rosa, my first employee came on board and I somehow convinced her to turn down her consulting offer, um, her <laughs> consulting offer. And I, mind you, I had no money. This was just me and my savings account. And so I told her she happened to be traveling, that she was a senior at Stanford graduating. Um, and I told her that by the time she comes back from you know, her internship in India over that summer, I would have a job and some way to pay her in September. That was the goal. And so basically, I had to figure out how to get funding by September.
0: Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> and
1: so that's when I, you know, putting together our plan is kind of when I realized there was no, like, where is the business model here? Like, what are we doing? Um, yet, I still went to go pitch. With basically no business model, or like no one that I really couldn't believe myself. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's the thing is like I went out to raise a seed round. I couldn't do it. I ended up raising a pre-seed round. Um, and I think that actually helped us because I think if we would have actually raised our full couple million seed round at that point, we would have continued on the marketplace thing because once you raise an institutional round, you're kind of committing to build that thing or at least try yeah. it out. Um, yep. So we didn't. And so what we ended up doing, um, and by the way, I did not raise on time. I paid my first paycheck to Rosa was from my savings account to pay for her rent. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean,
0: That's going all in though. I love it. I mean, it, it's so tough to, I'm sure to go through that decision. I mean, at that point, when you had to pay her from, I mean, were you you just assumed that you were close to raising that you would be able to. I'm just thinking of your mindset at the time.
1: I don't know what <laughs> my mindset was. It it honestly it there was never a moment where this couldn't work. Yeah. Um and don't get me wrong, now I have these fears all the time of, you know, what if we're doing the wrong thing? What if this I I have all of those what ifs that come come to mind, but for some reason that first year I guess I was just so brazen about it that there was no way we weren't going to get some money, get some backing and start, start chugging along.
0: With the initial raise, uh, you don't, I mean, I would love to know how, how big the initial precede, the precede was, if you're willing to share uh, for context for people, but if not, like how, how long did that end up lasting you then?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So we, you know, I sent out to raise 2 million very quickly realized that wasn't going to happen, ended up, Deci- decided to do, like, a 250K pre-seed. And then it ended up, you know, quote, unquote, oversubscribed, even though I was really initially attempting to raise more. All people, <laughs> at some point, they have just had nothing. But um, we ended up raising, I think, like, 450, something like that. And then, actually, as time went on, we'd meet more and more people. And then just, we just – because we did it on a note. We just add them to the round, and so I think before we did our rate, it was something around you know 450, and that actually lasted us up until a few like a month ago when we did our seed. You know, two months ago when we did our seed, we were super lean. Um, and I, you know, we went we went through it and back where we had a team, we let everybody go, we you know hired up contractors again. We went through those pivots like. It was it was very cyclical in that. And the goal was, let's just move as fast as possible because I've been a part of and seen too many startups that raise too much money too fast before they have product market fit.
0: Repeatedly, have, I've heard about the stories of, of those founders and, and raising too much and then it just goes to waste, really. I mean, it honestly just kind of wasted dollars on the investor side where they never can find that and they never end up getting it or they do and just the valuations are way off in terms of uh, the actual outcomes that will be for founders. And totally. and and with that too, like you hadn't. I'm really curious about that that initial funding. I mean, raising that. How did that go for you? How was that process for you? Trying to raise your first initial capital.
1: Yeah. So, gosh, I I think there's no word other than lucky to to put on so many things. I mean, I basically had one angel investor who coached me through the entire process, and. I feel now looking back on it, I mean, how many, it, it was a successful founder um, and how many people kind of get that boys club wisdom firsthand. Like when I said yeah. preaching, I mean, I'd send him text screenshots of emails and he'd help me figure out how to respond to them. It And, and so, so how that happened was basically, I, my brother is an amazing human who who you should talk to actually, but um, he had Ooh, gotten us. A... We will discuss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he had gotten tickets to this comedy festival in San Francisco, and I I think like that first year I was just so. And probably like now still, just so focused. And the thought of just, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to comedy festivals. I didn't, it's like, I got to work, man. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And he convinced me. He's like, you got to come I'm like, let's go. It'll be really fun. And he's ultimate hype man. And just the most positive personality. I was like, okay, fine. I'll come. He's like, I'll buy your ticket. Let's go. I was like, okay. And so <laughs> we went to this comedy festival and we happened to run into, um, a guy who ran a company called Tilt. And essentially, he had, we had met him a few years back when my brother's social app became really popular. And we'd gone over, you know, San Francisco, a block, I'd walked a block over to James, this guy's, uh, the angel investors guy, uh, company, and asked them for advice on how do you reach college students. It was, it was something so random like that. So we had met maybe a couple of years before, we ran into him and his wife, we're from Texas. They're from Texas. We're like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> Fast forward, you know, three months later, I'm grabbing breakfast with my brother um, before I get on a plane to go to a conference in, in Vegas. And I'm talking about how I'm going to come back and I'm going to start raising. And in the middle of breakfast, he says, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm, I was supposed to meet James for breakfast, like totally double booked. I'm so sorry. I was like, hey, why don't you go? I, I got to run anyway. So I head home um, and then, you know, 30 minutes later, my phone starts blowing up and my brother's like, you have to talk to James right now. He is, um, he is starting to angel invest full time. He's looking for great founders. I told him about you and he, he would love to like talk to you and like coach you. And he's looking to be a a coach for essentially for fundraising. I was like, okay. And he's like, just go to his house before, before the plane. I'm like, I have 30 (laughs) minutes. Like, (laughs) Okay, so I take my suitcase in the Uber, go to James's house and we just start talking and within five minutes, we start talking about alternative medicine and how how huge of a market this is, and how how big it's going to get. And he was he had been talking about founder burnout and how he started learning all these things and about in wellness that were interesting to him. And at the end of the conversation, he's like, I'm in. I want to do this with you. Let's do it. And I just wow. happened to find the right person at the right, and he ended up selling his company to Airbnb, leaving in angel investing full time. Um, and I happened to be his like first person he was coaching, and so it was just crazy uh, timing, lucky, all of that, and he was the first check in as well. Um, and so the process. It was a big learning experience, but I don't know how people do it if they don't have their James, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll say from interviewing a number of people who have done it. I mean, there's so many different ways to go about it, and you can be, you can definitely be more like, methodical. There's definitely a process you can take, but I've talked to people who have built their network from scratch to get investors. Some who have, you know, taken ten months to get their first checks uh and it is like there's no one answer but i think to your point uh you know i'm assuming you were fortunate to have james but at the same time you were in the bay you were in sf and that is a great place to have those connections that can happen because obviously this is the that's the mecca of 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 investing and in startups and everything and so it's something to be said for being in the right location but for others even uh looking at fundraising like you're gonna find a way in i know i think it was um Trying to think who there was someone else I interviewed actually uh, in Texas and he mentioned like going to every startup event possible and then meeting mm-hmm. people that way to get a connection to a connection that would you know get you an intro to an investor and that's how it kind of goes uh, with yeah. getting uh, your your first check and, and what I'm curious about too what take me through then from that first investment just in terms of the process and how it changed you know obviously this is years later but to your seed round mm-hmm. how did that change in terms of your your process for uh, getting investors.
1: Oh, totally different. I think it's a, you know, each fundraise is a unique snow- snowflake and there's properties of fundraisers just like snowflakes that are all similar, but then every single one is so different. And I think it's interesting right now because I'm, I'm actually helping a team out in the Midwest um, fundraise and I'm, yeah, I'm looking at them and I'm realizing like, they're incredible. If they were here, it'd be it, it just be so simple for them, but they're not. I think we point to the <laughs> yeah. bay, yeah. It, it is definitely an advantage, and that is why I chose it. Um, that's why. That's why I'm here. But um, to your point, how did our process change? Everything changed. Um, you know, at the point where we were doing our pre-seed, we had a prototype, and we had you know early, early signal that this space was this space was getting somewhere. Um, we. And I left it apart. Like we actually got very close to 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 raising a full seed round even then, um, yeah. But didn't. And I'm so glad we didn't, because what happened after that was, um, we essentially started iterating really, really quickly, and we probably built five to seven different products over the next few months in the marketplace space. And it just didn't make sense for us. Um, when I started reading more about, I mean, I think it was Fourth of July last year where I sat down and read Andrew Chen's, you know, 20 essays on marketplaces.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so many good ones yeah, out there with him. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And it just hit me. I was like, oh wow, this this is not the right industry for a marketplace and these dynamics don't work. Um it, it just didn't make sense. And so I had to face the reality that no matter how many ways we slice this current product, it wasn't gonna work. So I went back to the drawing board. Um at that point, like let, let go of everybody, it was just me and Rosa. Um and we went back to our original vision of a digital hospital for integrative medicine and functional medicine, and we just did that. So we said, let's just build the thing that we want to exist in the future, a very pared down version of it. And by doing that, we will find the problems and we'll learn. So we actually did that. We went from idea to running a full clinic in three states in one month. Again, with crazy <laughs> help and all the things, but- the important piece of that is that's where we learned the problem of lab testing. And we just had, it was just so obvious once we saw it and we just gave everything we had to the lab testing piece. It was an idea this last in January. So pre COVID and it just exploded. So then when we went out to do our seed raise, um, we had the metrics, I think, which is an, it's an entirely different fundraise to do it off of a story and a vision yeah. and a founder versus metrics. They're just oh, it's
0: entirely different, different. different. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. So,
0: did you end up raising the the two million that you mentioned? You were, you know maybe going to try to do when you ended up raising a pre seed or how was your your seed round?
1: Yeah, we ended up doing. I mean, I this sounds so silly to say, but I realized when we were going to get a term sheet from my top tier investor like my dream investor it was this moment where i actually felt like i was having a dream realized (laughs) yeah and it it sounds so silly it's just but
0: it doesn't sound silly no i get it It sounds very much so like it'd be a dream to have that that's what every entrepreneur would want i think
1: yeah and i think it was especially because it felt you know like the last two years we just celebrated our two-year incorporation day um Two years of just figuring it out. And I'm just so proud of our team for, you know, not consistently just head down, going down the wrong path, but being brave enough to recognize when things aren't working and change it, change it up. And I think that's what it was, was we had, we know this space better than anybody else. We earned that and we were able to do actually raise quite a bit more than what we initially set out to do from our top tier investor.
0: That's incredible. That's a goal people would love to have, I'm sure, as an entrepreneur. And that's great. And and one thing, one more thing just on the the fundraising front, because I I know people have asked me about this. How did you decide or how those conversations go? Obviously, you don't have to go into numbers, but conversations go about equity early on with your co-founder.
1: Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, because it's always tough. No conversation about equity is easy. Right. Uh, It's interesting because she, she, she came on board as my first employee, and then she grew in that role quite a bit to the point where it was evident that she was she'd been with me since day one and i wanted i wanted her to be co-founder and we actually brought and i, I thought that it would happen around our seed or if we brought on a technical co-founder as well and so in this last january when we started working on this product i mean it was it was like the stars aligned for us. The perfect technical <laughs> co-founder just happened to show up in my inbox. Um, it was crazy. And so we I went from being co like founder CEO to co-founder with two co-founders. And <laughs> that was a shift because I was not not only and the un, and the weird thing was I actually was negotiating, um, and I hate that word, but we were together deciding equity, with me and Rosa. And then Ben, our technical co-founder came in the mix after we'd had that. I mean, I'm talking about like two days after we had that. Wow. And so then what do we do? Right. So I actually had to go back and, and rejigger all of the equity up. Um, and then, and then there's the question of, you know, I put thousands and thousands of dollars of my own money in here. And so what I ended up doing Justin was I actually had an Excel spreadsheet and I just read a bunch of articles on how people think about equity and I wrote on every single factor that people might use for equity consideration. So title, you know, salary you're taking, um, uh, opportunity cost. Um, how many, how much time have you been with the company? How much money have you invested, Like all like, what are your roles and responsibilities? All of those things, it were in a line. And I just objectively wrote them out for every single one of us. And we looked at it together.
0: It's it's so great to hear that uh, because I don't think there's really much that's said from founders themselves about how they actually went through deciding on equity and I I've I've been through it. I was recently had my MBA at USC and like that was one of the classes we were discussing this equity thing and um you know it's all hypothetical but then yeah you've actually been through it and so I think it makes, it's great to have those factors out there and then looking through them with people was it I mean how how long was this conversation with them and how did this go I'm just curious.
1: It- Oh my gosh, there uh, there's so much to this that by the way if any if anybody wants to talk about this one on one there's probably stuff like I actually can't say. Not, yeah, just totally. Like, <laughs> mostly because out of respect for my co-founders, but yeah. This information could help people, I'm happy to chat about it one on one um or in small groups, but essentially I I had to we did the equity split and then my gut felt off about it. And I had to and I'm very glad I did this, but I had to go back against what I had originally said and I changed my mind. Um mm. and that was that was tough, but I'm very glad I did because I think if I hadn't, there would have been an underlying tension from the start. And so it took I'm a few weeks maybe yeah well another thing we did was i think first round has these questions but it's co-founder questions essentially and there's probably five or six different series maybe a hundred questions there's a lot and we all answered those questions and came together to discuss them before we did any of this
0: yeah it seems incredibly useful (laughs) yeah As you're going through that, because I mean, it it is such a, it's a big decision. It's a, I don't know if the right, not awkward would be the word, but it's just a really tough decision and uh, conversations to have with people, especially early on when this is something that you're all going to be so invested in for so many years.
1: Yep. And then I think another thing that we, that I think is important to do, not just for co-founders, but for anybody on the team is because equity is not, uh, it is not objective in any way, you know? (laughs) (laughs) What's actually very important is that people feel like they're being treated fairly and to be treated. One component of being treated fairly is making sure it's equitable for the company and the circumstances that you're in. So sharing the relative equity that you're getting is actually more important than the absolute. Hmm, And so with our co-founders, what we did was, ignore everything else in the world. Let's just look at us three as if we are splitting up 100% of a pie. And that's how we talked about our equity split. We didn't talk about like absolute percentages at all. It was just us three. Um, And so, you know, it's out of 100%, what do each of us bring to the table? What do we own? And that's actually how we do it with employees too, where it's here is how, here is what other people are getting and here's what you are getting.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really important point to make because it's like, okay, of the founder equity we have here, here's what percentage each person's getting. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. And, and I had, I wanted to hammer that point home because there's just so much so much that goes into that. And I think it's really important. And uh, to be honest, I haven't until recently really dove into that on the, on the show to talk about equity, uh, equity split, and even kind of like founder agreement and all that, because it, it's important, but uh, it just kind of went over my head. But i'm glad i'm bringing it up more and more uh one of the things then uh going from there obviously that's on the funding side and, and that's towards that i know you were initially kind of cold emailing people for the platform how has the customer acquisition evolved and changed like what does that look like today in terms of how you're approaching growing rupa health
1: yeah it's kind of nuts um i think the exercise that you'll hear is thinking through how do you get your first 10 your first 100 your first Thousand, thinking about it in orders of magnitude. And we're yeah. kind of at that inflection point where we need to think in order of magnitude higher. Up until now, it, it's been insane. It's been word of mouth. So almost entirely word of mouth with this new product. Um, we have done very little. We had done zero paid marketing, um even when we did our seed raise. Like it was just total growth. And I think a lot of people talk about organic growth. Um, in a way that if you actually dive in it look it's actually engineered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for us, I mean, we had one cold email that we'd send out. And outside of that, everything was referrals. Um I maybe wrote an article for one I wrote a post for one um one company's like weekly email or monthly email, but that was it. That is not going to scale. And so yeah. now we're thinking about What are the things that actually scale? The good thing about our industry is that we know who our customers are. We're b to c And our B2B portion makes it so that we know who they are, um, which is a whole different type of marketing or go-to-market than a B2C or even like a B2B enterprise, because we're essentially like more of a square, like small business
0: it obviously changes. Yeah. Like you said, it changes when you're, you're going through this life cycle of, of, of a company, how you acquire customers initially obviously changes, especially when you're lo- looking at being venture backed and having certain metrics, expectations, et cetera, which come along with taking institutional capital. You're kind of, you know, you're forced into thinking about, you know, how does this actually scale and how do we grow this to, to a farther level as you're growing the company? And as you're looking at scaling, how has the, the hiring gone? How have you approached hiring as you're growing your team build bigger and bigger as a company grows and you know, you need to get to that point of of really being able to scale everything?
1: Yeah. That's that's a great question. Um I think there's I am I'm probably the founder who's had PTSD from so much failure or like so many startups failing. Um by preventable causes, which Mm. is, you know, spending too much money too fast, like like essentially looking like a big company when you're not a big company. My preference is always to err on the side of of skepticism and cautioning whenever we believe we have product market fit and need to scale. (laughs) The question is, do we really, do we really, are we really able to scale? Because if you put money in and try to grow something that's not working if you have a leaky butt, It's just never going to work. So for us, I think we're actually more focused on retention right now than we are on scaling. However, the one thing we have done, so we we hired two critical roles, non-engineering roles, um, a head of operations and a head of growth it might be funny to think about like ahead of growth when I'm talking about how we're focusing on retention or not we're not <laughs> focusing on growth. Yeah. But I do think that for us, um and I went back and forth on like whether we hire a marketing and salesperson right now or not. For us, the market is really young and as if we can educate people, the more people we can educate on lab testing, the more customers we would have. And so I think that there's a couple types of growth there's like the immediate you know pour fuel on the fire type of growth where you're you know pumping into ads or you're looking at existing channels and then there's kind of like laying the foundation growth for you to be able to do it later and i'd say that's what we're doing now so we're investing in education and content and things that aren't going to reap rewards right now but will in six months
0: it's uh it's interesting you mentioned that i think about people say you know, it's like a leaky bucket. If you keep putting more and more into it, it's still leaking. It doesn't change the fact. So if you can improve that, you're going to be better. And there was, I don't know what podcast or what it was talking about retention rates. And like they had a company, I think actually it was uh, uh, Sean Sheik from Pivot CMO. He was talking about going through Y Combinator when he had a different company. And they were basically said, oh, well, if you just increase your opt-in rate 1%, you'll reach your revenue, re- revenue numbers you need based on your whole funnel and how it works. And it was like, wait a minute. That's all we should focus on That that one metric yeah. is that literally double the business. And that's what happened. It's exactly what happened for them. And so I look at it even to, with with just so grind or other com, you know, media companies. Like if you look at, you want to add more fuel to the fire, do more for it. If you create more blog posts, that's great. But if you don't have a good email capture, if that's what's part of your business, then you're not going to be able to <laughs> gather more emails, which then can lead to more sponsors potentially, which then can be easier to feed back into the podcast. Like there's so many things like to that point of like, it makes sense in, in terms of how you're looking at it. It seems like that you're fixing these things to make sure you're set up. And then once it's time to go, you turn it on. Uh, yeah, you, you can grow into what you, you need to do.
1: Totally. I think that so many people think of growth. And this was me, right? Previously, too. People think of growth or growing the business as just top of funnel. Um, yeah. When in reality, it's the entire funnel. And there's so many different level. I think that that example you gave is spot on.
0: Even uh, I actually interviewed Ren Fishkin from, he founded Moz, a SEO company. Now he's at SparkToro, another company uh, of his, and he always talks about flywheels and even thinking of it from that perspective of, you know, you do one activity feeds into the next one, which feeds into the next one, which comes back eventually to the main activity where everything is amplified. And even thinking of things from from that way as well and investing in those flywheels, because then again, it can be a a content marketing flywheel, a PR flywheel, it could be a paid acquisition flywheel, but all your efforts are amplified. By doing more of the same thing, and that's that's how I think I've I've always kind of viewed things. Recently, ever since I I, I talked to him about that, it was it kind of just clicked. We're like, oh, this all feeds in together, and that's how you can get this growth in your company. That's exactly. way beyond what you could otherwise.
1: Exactly, and and you know your business better than anybody else. And I think if if people um, sometimes I need just quiet time to think about what is the thing that's actually going to move the business forward. And it looks yeah. like a moment for me to let go of all the other voices that are in my head and listen to what I know to be true. Um and it's it's sometimes not easy because it doesn't look like it's the right thing from the outside. Cause it's usually not the sexy stuff. It's not the like sexy top of funnel growth metrics or putting yourself out there or press or anything like that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, It's like the uh, the idea of being effective versus being efficient. You can be efficient with what you're currently doing, but if it's not effective yeah. for what you're doing, then it doesn't matter.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: I'm really curious about, I want to talk about kind of the, the mental health side of things with founders and just with your experience and what you're doing inherently. Um, how do you take care of your own mental health, Tara?
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's tough. It's really, really tough. Um, I've had so many... I guess health things. I I crashed in my first three months of trying to try and start Rupa. Um, I discovered I spent almost all of 2019 last year. Um, super tough. Essentially sick without figuring out why. Um, had been to you know 25 different doctors and it had started stopped being able to wear contacts and it was just wearing on me and I thought that. My body was telling me that I couldn't do this journey, and it was excruciating. Um, yeah, and I think that I have learned so much over the last few years. I, the mental health aspect is one that is constantly evolving because the load on my mental health is never constant, it's always changing. So, by Default my I guess like the thing the tools I use need to change as well. The things that have helped me the most um is stream of conscious journaling and then getting solitude, like really getting alone time um, there's a zillion other things I've tried and do in therapy and coaching like literally everything. I'm that person who tries everything. <laughs> But the two things that have really made my life better and also helped the business is journaling and, and getting alone time.
0: What does your journaling uh, habit kind of look like?
1: Um. So every morning, I'll just take out a blank moleskin, and I have tons of these in my house. Like I, I mean, <laughs> I go through one every three months. Um. And <laughs> it's whatever is on, and I've done this for years now. It's whatever is on my mind, I write. And I had to let go of, you know, this is for me. If someone found these journals and read them, I would be, I don't even know. I don't even know what happened. <laughs> It's everything, it's just release. It's releasing everything in my head. Um, And what I found is that I, That's where I come to conclusions. That's where I think for myself. That's where I build frameworks. That's where I release pent up emotions. It's, it's everything. Um, you know, today is probably started out with, uh, something around like. I don't know my matcha tastes good this morning I like it <laughs> it's, it's that and then I'm I'm feeling anxious about this I have four hours of meetings in a row did I make a mistake in doing back-to-backs like that type of stuff it, it's it, it's that and I found that to be incredibly helpful I will I, I will make a quick note on journaling I think that it's one of the yeah. things that The biggest thing for journaling for me is nobody had to tell me to do it. It's something I love doing. Yeah. And I hear a lot about a lot of people are like, oh, how'd you get yourself to do it? I'm like, well, it's just something I enjoy. I think that's a big thing for mental health, too, is if you're not doing the thing, if if your tools aren't things that you enjoy, you're probably just making it worse.
0: Yeah, then it's another thing to do. Yeah, it's like exactly. more an added stressor.
1: Exactly,
0: exactly. <laughs> You're like, oh, I have to do this now. I have to do, this. and I, I actually, I'm a big journaler as well. And I think it's, I, I mean, I literally feel like it's something I need to do. It's not have to do it. I need to, like, I, I want to, but I also need to, because I'm the same way when I, I need to get it out on paper. Yeah, exactly. and that it brings clarity. Exactly. And and there's just one or two more things I want. I want to bring up uh, before we have to wrap up. But one being Wim Hof. How was that? Training experience, any takeaways from oh. from that experience?
1: Oh my gosh, We're, I have so many funny stories about this. He actually, uh, i have <laughs> actually this desk. he actually slept on my couch when he was in San Francisco a few years ago. <laughs> That's I'm, I'm actually sitting on right now. Um, he.
0: How did that happen? Wait, what? He can't just gloss over that fact.
1: He, yeah, this was okay. So this is years ago. um I've, I've always been interested in trying new things that that, you know, I don't, whatever. At this point, I'm just your traditional like Tim Ferriss groupie type person. I was going <laughs> to say I'm a huge fan. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I remember like listening to the whim, the whim uh, podcast very early on, I think it was 2015, maybe, maybe five years ago. Um, and I ended up finding a Facebook event where he was going to be in treasure Island in the Bay area. And so I, so I like tried to convince my friends to go, nobody wanted to go. <laughs> so for like one <laughs> friend, so I ended up buying this ticket and at the point, you know, I, I, $200 on a ticket was a lot of money for me, actually, you know, it still is so for, for me to think about going to something like that. Then it was a yeah. workshops and I go to this thing and, you know, there are these people checking you in at the front desk and it's totally chaotic I mean there was maybe 50 people there it was really really small um and that was it like i I ended up the people who were checking me in happened to be his daughters and I realized <laughs> his family ran ran his business and oh, so wow. I was just curious and so I ended up um it, there's so much there's so much more to the story which maybe we can talk about another time but um yeah I uh I ended up just talking to people afterwards and ended up being the last person there so I ended up hanging out with Wim and his family and anyway like a year a year later I end up in Amsterdam um, and that's where they're from and I end up spending time with them and then maybe a few months later they come to the Bay Area so they reach out to me and they stayed with me and it was just it was just a friendship that started because I was curious and started to break into them that was literally it. Yeah. before they were like crazy crazy famous Um,
0: yeah very much so now
1: (laughs) I I was intrigued by this idea I'm I'm always fascinated and impressed by people who dedicate their life to things when it's not cool to do so Um, in Wim if you hear a story I mean he's been mocked and made fun of for the majority of his life it's only recently that he's been given some recognition for the work he's done and I'm so inspired by that. Um, and so that plus the breath, breath work is something just I've always been into interested in, meditation, all of it. So, yeah, I think that all of these things are interesting tools to teach us what we're capable of. Um, it's like I see Wim Hof method as something that everybody should try once to see if it has any sort of beneficial effect on their body or their mind. And if so, why wouldn't you keep doing it?
0: Yeah. Tara, where can people go to learn more about your company? Kind of with you if they want to, everything.
1: You know, I don't know. I'm like, I'm like where where can you? Obviously our company, rupahealth.com, R-U-P-A-H-E-A-L-T-H. Um, I'm on all the socials. I'm not really great at Twitter. I'm not really great at social media anymore, which is shocking because I I still actually love it. Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram. I, I think there's so much so many great things have happened to me because of social media and I think there's a, a right way to use it for me. But uh yeah. but yeah, so I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm not really on Twitter, but
0: for well, for someone who is not great at social media folks, understand this. She's running a thriving business without yeah. being great at social media. So it can be possible. It can be uh, actually
1: business was better after I stopped being on social media as much.
0: Well, well there you go. <laughs> I'll be sure to link up all all the socials and everything in the show notes as well. Just go grind.com slash podcast. Tara, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Justin.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen.